Hello, and welcome uh, to this episode of Philosophy Exchange. Today, it is Rose and myself, Carl, from uh, the auspices of London <laughs> and the Netherlands, respectively. Uh, you and I both studied at the London School of Economics for our graduate programs in philosophy. Why don't you share a little bit more about your background and interest in this week's topic, which is on artificial intelligence? Hi guys, excited to be here today. I did my master in philosophy of the social sciences at LSE, and I did my dissertation in philosophy of artificial intelligence. And I wrote it actually on the intelligence explosion. So it's a bit of a sci-fi uh, thing, but <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm just really interested in this topic. I'm now myself going to be working at the United Nations robotics and artificial intelligence team. On the side, I'm also doing UNESCO's Youth AI Ethics Steering Committee I'm part of. So what we do is we advise on policy of artificial intelligence. So actually just worldwide policy, right? So it's also the, it, we do it for the EU commission, but we also do it worldwide. So yeah, it's just, it's, yeah, I just find it a fascinating topic because it's so crucial in today's world and for the future. Yeah. So I'm just excited to get started and yeah, me and Carl will be doing a series. So this is the first of the series that we're going to be doing. Yeah. Maybe Carl, you can go a bit deeper into that. Maybe introduce yourself a bit. <laughs> yes, yes. So for those who want to know a little bit more about me, I studied as well at the London School of Economics and doing philosophy and public policy. And I did my master's dissertation on the legal personhood status of artificial intelligence agents. And yeah, you can think about that as, as being yeah, really relevant in terms of policy, because if you think about, for instance, an idea that is generated by an artificial intelligence system, then the question might arise, okay, to whom does this idea belong? Who, to whom does this patent of, say, a light bulb, a special light bulb de uh, design belong? Yeah, so that's what I studied at, uh, at the LSE. So with that... Rose, perhaps we can turn to you with an introduction. Basically, throughout the past years, we've seen a rapid increase in uh, new AI technologies, right? We've seen AlphaZero beating the world's, world's best uh, chess player in the world. We've seen autonomous vehicles coming up. We've seen AI finishing emails with natural language processing. You know, we've seen an immense increase. So it's just, it's important, this topic, first of all, but... Second of all, all these activities that have been recently developed, they all require some level of intelligence or understanding, or at least like presumably they do. That, that's how the argument goes. But the question is really, is that really the case? Is it the case that this AI um, agent or this AI program um, really understands what it's doing? Does it, and what kind of intelligence are we even talking about? Is that human level intelligence? Is that artificial, you know, like what's the difference between human and artificial? How do we define these things? What are different types? I think that's just essential to talk about in our first episode to lay the basis and groundwork uh, for the next couple uh, episodes we're going to be doing anyway. Also, maybe also interesting just to note that we are looking at these episodes in this series as 
kind of interdisciplinary work. So we're looking at it from a philosophical side, but also computer scientist side and uh, mathematical at one point. Um, those will be in preceding episodes, I think. But today, let's focus on the philosophical side and, you know, the definition of AI and yeah, maybe just do these activities that I just mentioned, an alpha zero or autonomous vehicle, do they actually show a level of intelligence or understanding? And, you know, how how do we relate to that? What is AI? What do you think AI is? Or, yeah, how yes. would you define it? And yeah, let's, let's talk about that. Yes. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great question and a, a great place to start. Um, if, if simply because it is such a vague and broad term when we when we say artificial intelligence you know i should say the the term comes from a, a research group in in 1956 whose goal was to make a quote machine behave in ways that would be called intelligent as if a human were so behaving unquote you know i say that because that's kind of the backdrop for uh, this explosion in literature um, on the topic of artificial intelligence. And the field, <laughs> whether it's from a business perspective, a policy perspective, a philosophical perspective, a computer science perspective, the field is incredibly broad and I would say daunting and confusing for those who are, are looking into this term. What is artificial intelligence? Is this, <laughs> you know, is this the streetlights, you know, telling us when we are driving a vehicle, when we can go and when we must stop? Is that, you know, do we call that artificial intelligence? Or is artificial intelligence, you know, what, what we hear of when, when we perhaps watch the famous film 2001, A Space Odyssey, where there is this robot Hal, who with his red eye anthropomorphizes a human kind of villain, because in that film, uh, he turns against human um, individuals and, and suggests that his intelligence reigns kind of over top of the human's intelligence, right? You know, we have such a large gap uh, between <laughs> these, these different types of, of intelligence and, and indeed what we've been talking about in these examples I provided of, say, some stoplights to, to how uh, 9000 from the, the film 2001 A Space Odyssey, what, what we're talking about is silicon-based artificial systems. Uh, and you can think about um, a typical uh, notebook computer or an iPad mini, for example. These electronic devices are very much the same type of kind of artificial systems. And many of us in our, our workplaces might have used something that resembles an artificial intelligence system. One might even go to the extent of, of saying when somebody sums up numbers in Excel to perhaps check their receipts at the end of the, the month, that too could be a type of artificial intelligence system because it is computing in a, a specified manner as requested by the user. But of course, that is, is not what first comes to mind when, when we associate artificial intelligence with these types of um, science fiction films and indeed 
recently with, as, as you mentioned, Rose, examples like um, from Google DeepMind of, um, uh, was it the Google Alpha DeepMind? What, what did you say it was? Alpha Zero. I Alpha think. Zero, exactly, yes, um, for, for chess, yes. Yes, yeah, so so I, I should just uh, pause there to take a breath, but <laughs> but yeah. but I, I I think that there is sufficient depth here to discuss at, at length this this topic. So yeah. Rose, I believe that, that we have a, a couple of uh, different terms that that perhaps can assist with this process going forward in how to think about yeah. artificial intelligence. Yeah, I mean we we've heard the terms. I don't know if you've heard the terms. At like at LSE, but I've heard it quite a bit. You know, we we talk about strong AI versus weak AI, mm. um, whereby people think that weak AI is an AI that doesn't, like basically weak AI doesn't make the claim that AI is intelligent or actually understands or has the mental capabilities as humans. Mm. Um, so again, we see this kind of criteria that every time we talk about intelligence, we talk about human intelligence. We always go back to that, which is, in essence, quite interesting to me because maybe AI would have a completely different set. Like maybe we shouldn't at all think about human intelligence when we talk about AI. Maybe AI has a completely different definition of intelligence or sh should be needed to assess um, whether it is doing something right or wrong. But yeah, anyway, we have weak AI and strong AI. So weak AI claims that, you know, it, yeah, it's an AI system that doesn't actually understand uh, the content or the symbols that it is processing. Strong AI is the view that the program systems can actually understand natural language and actually have uh, mental capabilities similar to those of humans. So I think that's the difference. So maybe strong AI could be, yeah, I'm thinking maybe, maybe could be like autonomous vehicle. People could say that, you know, when an autonomous vehicle comes to a stoplight and makes a decision, it could be seen as a person that is at the stoplight driving a car and thinking right should I now brake or should I gas or what should I do and that's a decision-making procedure humans do as well and maybe that decision-making procedure requires understanding and more understanding than a weak AI would. It's interesting to look at these two notions and I think also people mention often general AI and narrow AI. Yes. Um, do you know what that is? Well, I can't. I can't really remember it, to be honest. Yes. Yes. No. It's it's interesting uh, uh, thinking about general versus narrow AI, and I should say, along with strong and weak, there is much discussion uh, in academic literature, and I imagine also in in business and policy literature around this question of where do different uh, systems fit in. For example, this. AI system called uh, GPT-3, a language learning system that uses deep learning to produce human-like text. And, and, and so I just give that as an example of, you know, one of these, quote, AI systems that, uh, so in September, it was used in a um, Guardian article, a newspaper article, to recreate an uh, opinion edition of the, the newspaper, uh, which was quite interesting, I, I think, to, to read. And yet, if, if you read it, one could immediately see that, yes, it was a computer system, an artificial intelligence system that essentially took 
a, an array, a variety of words, and then place them uh, together. And, and I just say that to, to emphasize the, the fact that some might claim that the GPT-3 uh, system comes close to say a general uh, or strong AI. Personally, I, I think that uh, it would be closer to the weak um, or narrow uh, AI system. Um, why is that? System. Well, why yes. do you think that? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, a fair question. So I think that because the way, so you, you use the word symbols, like to talk about weak AI. And I think I would say that a system like this, GBT-3, uh, uses, like it looks at the words and, and then puts them in a certain order that it recognizes. It puts them in a pattern. And this to me is, is very much of, of the idea of what, what both weak and narrow AI systems do is that they take uh, patterns that they recognize and, and this is where they use what's called deep learning, um, which is, is the process by which an artificial intelligence system will, uh, let's say, recapitulate um, itself um, okay, multiple times in order to, to arrive at that, uh, that answer. And so for example, with a, a newspaper article that I was mentioning with The Guardian, uh, what the system is doing is it is taking, it is selecting from a variety of words, kind of the output that it desires and then placing them in a pattern or an order uh, that is kind of attractive or desirable for the end user, for the newspaper reader. Um, so, so that's why, uh, you know, I say that GBT3, uh, for instance, uses um, more, more, approach, more approaches uh, the weak side of artificial intelligence rather than the strong. But let me move back a little bit a way to think about narrow uh, versus general AI is to think about narrow AI as machines that might perform autonomous intelligent agency in contexts where there is clear rules that are predetermined and pre-programmed to, to regulate their behavior. Um, so for example, uh, a machine that plays chess or a a vehicle that is trained to, to drive on uh, pre-selected lanes. This is something uh, that I suppose might be considered a narrow AI. By contrast, general AI uh, can be uh, looked at as, as the goal of, of most artificial intelligence technicians and scientists where there is complete autonomy or at least approaching complete autonomy. Um, and uh, yes, uh, you know, in unspecified uh, situations or environments, that's what general artificial intelligence can be understood as. With that being said for general versus narrow AI, um, I think that uh, we should move forward with providing a couple of examples here. And to this extent, I, I think that there's a couple of 
uh, of different um, famous uh, identifiers of artificial intelligence in, in the literature right. that, that we can move towards. So uh, Rose, I, I think that we, we can talk about both the Turing test as well as the Chinese room experiment. Yeah, basically, you know, we're talking about all these different definitions of AI. So we have general versus weak and strong versus narrow, these different kinds of intelligences that we can look at. But then how do we measure intelligence? What kind of tests are there to measure intelligence? I mean, we, we see yes. IQ tests, we see EQ tests, we see different varieties of how to measure intelligence. Mm. But Alan Turing, who's basically seen as the founder of AI, he came up with the Turing test. And this was a way to measure whether uh, the AI was actually intelligent enough or was had a sense of intelligence. Yes. Yeah, so maybe actually you want to go into the Turing test and then I'll go into the Chinese room because the Chinese room is quite interesting because it's a critique of the Turing test. What exactly is the Turing test? What, what did he mean by this? Yes, no, I, I think that's wonderful really. And I, I should say, I think that even those uh, these examples come from, uh, in the, the case of the Turing test from uh, computer science and in the case of uh, the Chinese uh, room experiment from philosophy that these are really used throughout the AI literature, which is very cross-disciplinary. Yes, no, the, the Turing test uh, is uh, unsurprisingly named after Alan Turing. How great is it to have uh, something that is named after you? Wonderful, wonderful. Maybe one day we'll, we will have the, the Rose test. Um, a Rose test, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that would entail yet, but I'll get back to you, Carl. I'll get yes, back well, it has beautiful connotations in it anyways of the, the flower in the English language, so yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yes, but uh, the, the Turing test does not have um, particularly <laughs> rosy connotations, um, <laughs> uh, but it, it is a seminal, and it refers to a, a suggestion from the cryptologist, very cool, uh, uh, I guess, uh, way to describe yourself. Hello, I'm Alan Turing. I'm a cryptologist. <laughs> I think I think that's cool as well. <laughs> um, oh yes. gosh, but he was such a cool guy. I mean, have you seen the Imitation Game, uh, game, Carl? Oh, actually, I haven't watched this film. No, oh, you have to watch it. It's so good. It's about yeah. Alan Turing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he oh, was nice. the one that cracked the uh, Nazi code, and he saved. He basically saved the war. So you know, then again, this guy. Like we should all really respect him because he, <laughs> we're all here today because of this guy. So yeah. this test he's talking about is pretty damn important. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, definitely really good movie. Kira Knightley's in it. You know, we all have to see Ooh. it. Ooh. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah. You should watch it. Let me know what you think about it. Yes. Okay. No, that's a, that's a good suggestion. Okay. Um, we, we can have a, a, a film night at uh, Philosophy Exchange. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay, but the Turing test, tell me about it, because it is, yeah, it, why is it so crucial in that an AI either, you know, passes this test or not? What, mm. what does that even mean? Yes, so, so the Turing test is a way of dealing with the question of whether machines can think. And, and put simply, we can think about this as uh, a computer 
that replicates uh, human intelligence, if, it, if the computer is able to copy the task, uh, say the task is to, um, to be able to communicate uh, via words uh, with say, write an email to another human, the computer that is able to replicate that task is considered to have passed the Turing test, right? So, so uh, another way to describe it might be to, to say, if there is in, an intangible quality X, and it, X in this case would be um, uh, writing the email, then the computer uh, or artificial intelligence system passes that test if it is able to, to, repu uh, to replicate what the human did in, in this case, writing an email. We should say though, that writing an email can be done by a computer. You know, this, this is possible, but the Turing test where it gets difficult is to uh, replicate human activities that are more complex than simply writing an, an email. And an example of this, um, you know, as exemplified um, earlier, uh, we discussed the, the Guardian uh, article. So an example where a computer or an artificial intelligence system, it's an entire article that then is disseminated to thousands of readers of that newspaper and understood clearly as understood as being written, not necessarily by a computer, but perhaps as a writer at that um, newspaper, well, that would be essentially passing the Turing test. Um, yeah. yeah. Do, now, am, am I saying that that clearly, Rose, or, or do, you, do you have any questions that arise from that? No, no, I, th I, think, I think you're saying this clearly. Um, I also, I remember reading this article and uh, of Alan Turing about the Turing test. And mm. I remember he also said, there is a set of questions whereby so there are a set of questions and the human answers them and a computer answers them. And if you can't distinguish between the two, that means you pass the Turing test. I think he, yes. there was something like that, that that kind of stuck with me that I was like, right, that's quite easy. It's a nice way of thinking about it. That if you can't actually see a behavioral change or a change in the output you're receiving between a human and an AI agent, then you've passed a Turing test and you're as equal and as intelligent as a human being. Yeah. Plus, and then Alan Turing believed, right? He, he, he said, you know, if you pass this test, it also means that you under, you understand the symbols you're processing. He says, hmm. is it, if you pass a Turing test, you understand what you're doing as AI, you are just as smart and just as intelligent and you have the same mental capacities as a human being. In my opinion, that's um, a little short because I think, you know, it doesn't purely by manipulating formal symbols, purely by getting input and like extracting output from something doesn't mean necessarily that you understand the information within or the content within these symbols, right? Yes. So yeah, th there's this thought experiment called this Chinese room. So th this is another thought experiment or a theory really actually it's an argument as well by John Thurl. That's, that's very important in this field. And it's actually a critique of the Turing test. In 1980, a um, article called Minds, Brains and Programs. And it is a thought experiment, but you can also call it an argument. So some people say it's the Chinese room. 
thought experiment. Some people say the Chinese room argument. I'm going to say it's a thought experiment, and then I'm going to say what John Searle, which argument he um, he kind of extracts out of it, because、mm. he says, okay, I'm I'm just going to tell you what the thought experiment is, and I would love to like hear your opinion, Carl. But、um, yeah,、yes. so okay, what he says is like, imagine a native English speaker who knows no Chinese. Is locked inside a room full of boxes of Chinese symbols, together with a book of instructions for manipulating these symbols. So he has a rule book, and he has boxes full of Chinese symbols. And then imagine that people outside the room are sending in other Chinese symbols, which, unknown to the person inside the room, are questions in Chinese. Hence, this is the input. And imagine that the person、uh, inside the room is following the instructions in the rule book, and is. Actually, using this rule book to answer the questions, and like writes it in Chinese, and again puts it under the door as the output. So, long story short, there's a guy in a room. He doesn't know Chinese. He's an English speaker. He has a rule book in front of him, which clearly says, you know, if you get symbol, this kind of Chinese symbol or this question, you need to answer with this symbol, right? And he can easily do that because he's just translating it, and then he's getting questions、um, thrown to him within the room, and he answers them by using this rule book. Now, Sura goes. The point of this argument is, quote: If the man in the room does not understand Chinese on the basis of implementing the appropriate program for understanding Chinese, then neither does any of the other digital computers or AI on that basis. Unquote. So what he's saying is, this guy in this room, who's just using a rule book to translate these Chinese symbols, and doesn't understand Chinese. He's just basically saying, you know, if I get this symbol, then I'll have to give back this symbol. But that doesn't mean he understands Chinese or understands any meaning of those symbols. He's just processing <laughs> these these things, and so and that's interesting, right? Because Turing would say if he is just He gets these symbols. He he gets input, and he creates output, and it's the right set of output. What? Of course, he understands it because otherwise he would get the wrong output. Yes. Cyril says, "Wait, hold up. <laughs> that、yes. doesn't make any sense because just because you have input and output, that doesn't mean the black box or the thing in the middle understands what it's doing.、Uh, and that's simply the difference between humans and artificial intelligence. That's a different type of intelligences, basically, and." Yeah, I think it's very interesting. But then also, you know, then people say, which I think is also kind of funny. They say a reply to this would be, there's just there are a lot of replies to this. I mean, you see Margaret Bowden and lots of like philosophy of AI、uh, scholars. They reply to this Chinese、uh, room experiment. This one reply is the robot reply, and it says, okay, maybe the guy in the room in the Chinese room doesn't understand Chinese because he's just manipulating symbols, but. If he would get, if you would put the guy inside a robot and would give him arms and would give him, like some kind of like camera-fed visual program for its eyes, or you would give him arms, legs, whatever, all these things, then it would perceive, it could feel, well,、mm. or you know, <laughs> it could interact at、mm. least. I don't know if it could feel, but it could interact with its environment, and if it does that, then it does understand what it's doing, right? So. It it then does understand that 
okay, this is a hamburger that I'm holding and I'm eating it now. And okay, this is a hamburger and I like hamburgers and I have a certain emotion towards hamburgers. That's what some people feel is true understanding to have actually arms, legs and be with the environment and not stuck in a room, in a Chinese room because yeah, that's, that is not fully understanding something. I find it interesting. I mean, in my opinion, I think, honestly, I think the guy in the room probably doesn't understand Chinese because indeed he's just using this rule book and acting like he understands Chinese and giving the right answers, but not actually fully understanding what he's doing. Yes. But on the other hand, I don't know what then understanding would be, right? Like I, I don't believe there's necessarily also in our brains as humans, something so, I don't know, like so special, you know, like I, I don't, mm. I don't think, Eventually, I think everything we do is just input. So if I'm looking at a lamp, I see this lamp, that's the input I'm receiving. I'm, I'm thinking about other lamps that I've seen before and therefore I recognize it as a lamp. So it's the input I'm receiving is through my eyes. Okay, I see a lamp. The output is, oh, okay, I define it as a lamp. This is a lamp. I don't yes. think necessarily there are any crazy like emotions or things in between or a level of consciousness that could not be done or mimicked by AI. Yes. So, I mean, John Searle is very much like, we can never obtain the level of understanding that humans have within AI, like that, that's never going to happen. In my opinion, I think it is going to happen. And I'm pretty sure that in uh, hundreds of years, we are going to get that level of intelligence that we want, or even a new level of intelligence that we as humans don't even, we aren't even capable of thinking about because we don't even know what that would entail. But this whole act of, you know, there's something special about us and uh, this input and output and in between there, there are loads of things that, you know, that matter and that are important to develop AI. I doubt that. I, I, I'm skeptical. I don't know how you feel about it, Carl, but um, yes. yes, I'm a functionalist. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. Uh yeah <laughs> not by choice but by intuition yes intuition pure intuition yes <laughs> yeah oh my my goodness this is um i, I think a, a fascinating question yeah for me it, it's it's a, a question of the mathematics and and the logic uh, behind artificial intelligence systems so so yes i suppose that there is uh, something particular about the the human brain and the human mind. Yes, also I can see that it, it hypothetically would be possible uh, for uh, an entity to replicate the human mind, or, or you know, we use this word consciously, uh, conscious, or, or or consciously, almost flippantly, because because we have such little understanding of what somebody means when they use the word conscious um, you know when when we say somebody is unconscious for example well they're not uh, perhaps their their brain is not um, functioning in in the same manner that it normally would but the the rest of their body might be working perfectly fine for example they're still breathing they they you know still have have many of their human systems working just perfectly fine um, but but in relation to artificial intelligence uh, systems, based off of the the systems that we have today, 
uh, do I believe that that we are able to approach that um, uh, that replication of the human mind? To me, I am I'm skeptical on this, and I say that with the knowledge that logically, yes, I, I do think this is possible. Logically, yes, but uh, but in terms of looking at, for instance, in the past. Uh, 70 years be, between when um, Turing wrote uh, or, or had a, a, an experiment named after him. And uh, so we will wait 70 years for the Rose experiment uh, to come <laughs> and <laughs> be well known. But, but I, I think about the progress made there and the, the term artificial intelligence is very popular, particularly in the past decade. Yeah, I do think it is applied, uh, again, flippantly, just as in the word consciousness. And I think that there is an overzealous kind of application to, to where artificial intelligence can be used and, and to what facilities it, it, it might be used. And, and so that, that would be my standing as of today and, and of course, you know, further investigation could be warranted. And, and to this end, I, I very much look forward to, yes, episodes about genetic modification or, or codification in relation to artificial intelligence systems. Uh, I look forward to conversations on the mathematics of uh, artificial intelligence systems. Uh, I look forward to uh, thinking about the applications Right, and and it it's fun. You know, we we talk about this coming from the philosophical background, and yet there are so many applications uh, for, say, a business, uh, even a a, a nonprofit, uh, a policy maker. You're you're working with the United Nations for for instance on this. These are immense questions that deserve investigation, and <laughs> to that extent. Um, yeah, just being able to talk about this, I think, is is a joy. Rose. Yeah, same. I, you know, I think it's important to. I like the fact that, you know, this podcast is about sharing these thoughts and kind of provoking new ideas. I'm also excited to invite new speakers and interview new, um, yeah, research institutions, businesses. We're all gonna, yeah, we're gonna be interviewing loads of people, and I think that's that's gonna be exciting. Yeah, and also yes. insightful. And I hope that our listeners <laughs> will find so too. It is a <laughs> discussion <laughs> between you and all, but it is a it is an important discussion. And um, if you ever, as a listener, feel, you know, I want I want to contribute to this discussion, please uh, send us a you know send us an Instagram DM or you know you know where to find us. Um, yeah, we would love to hear from you. All right, guys, have a really good day. <laughs> <laughs>